Hello and welcome to another episode of No Limits with Christoph and Luke. This is a spooky episode. It's number 13. That's just superstition, right? The the birds are chirping, the sun is shining, <laughs> everything's going smoothly. You mean the entire world is not driven by the cadence of the No Limit podcast? It's not? What? <laughs> Where My in world the is. world are you right now? Uh, I'm still in Lake Tahoe. I'm on day 68 of my ski season. I've got another two and a bit weeks to go. Uh, the mountain's Is been that... closed for some time because I've had so much snow. It's uh, like a, re oh, wow. a record season in the last sort of 50 years. I've never seen anything like it. It's pretty crazy. I've never heard of a mountain being closed for too much snow. Yeah, we managed to ride a chairlift for the first time in a week yesterday. And it's like riding through a tunnel. They've actually had to dig like the chair out. It's nuts. That's crazy. So yeah. meanwhile, I've been on a isolated beach because uh, classes are out. So I have um, spring break started uh, for me last Thursday. So I immediately took myself to a place with no in internet access, no gadgets, no nothing. I was on my hammock. I was drinking my pina coladas. Life is good. What did I miss? Anything? Seems uh, birds are pretty still, quiet. Yeah, like I'm saying, sweet. Okay. Pretty quiet. So do we even have anything to talk about? <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, yeah, it's been a quiet week, isn't it? Oh, I, I suppose there was nearly the complete collapse of the financial system. That did happen a few days ago. Wait, what? I thought, we were... <laughs> I thought yeah. 2008 would have taught us everything we need to know. It pretty much did, but oh. this was some wriggly little bank that doesn't quite fall under all of the capital requirements and the liquidity requirements that the big systemically important banks do but anyway we're talking about silicon valley bank and it's probably a good way to kick off today's podcast should i yeah, try to give so, an outline of what i think happened yes please because i am a banking fool and i really don't understand the ins and outs i think you do so give us the lay of the land the big picture of what's going on with silicon valley bank and the, the tremors the earthquake tremors that everyone was feeling over the weekend yeah, and those, those tremors are still quaking, albeit we do seem to have a nice, clear resolution, at least for uh, US depositors. So Silicon Valley Bank focused on supporting the tech sector, kind of banking almost clients that for some of the bigger banks might be considered a little bit unbankable because they're so young, um, maybe pre-revenues in some cases, kind of a slightly unusual business model. And... Silicon Valley Bank were interesting in that this was almost their entire client base. You know, if they called themselves something a little less focused, perhaps they'd have had a bit, a bit more of a broader business model, but they were all about banking these kind of clients. And what's happened in tech over the last year, two years? Well, if you're an investor in growth companies, you know painfully in your pocket that many of these tech companies are really suffering. And they're hemorrhaging revenues, they're hemorrhaging customers. They still have all their cost base. And so they're having to withdraw their funds from SVB, from their banker, because they've got to pay their bills, but they're not generating the same revenues they were expecting. And so SVB has been seeing quite consistent, strong outflows for quite a long time. So the kind of deposit base is shrinking. Now, that wouldn't necessarily normally be a problem for a bank. It's not great for the bank's business model, but it shouldn't be like a mortal risk of the bank. But unfortunately, SVB did some kind of silly things that they shouldn't have done. And the main thing is um, they didn't hedge their interest rate risk. I, from what I'm reading, like barely at all. But, you know, maybe maybe there's a bit of gray here, but they certainly didn't hedge to the extent they should have. When you're a bank, you want to balance 
like the maturity and the interest rates of your inflows and your outflows. You've got to kind of balance the books. And SVB unfortunately didn't do that. They thought perhaps they were being smart and they invested the money they were holding, a large chunk of it, like more than 50% of it, in like government-backed uh, bonds and US treasuries, that sort of thing. But if we look at what's happened also over the last 12 months, interest rates have climbed precipitously from like less than 1% to 4 to 5%. Hey, Luke, could, could I ask you one, one clarifying question, which I imagine some of our listeners might appreciate? I've been told bonds are the safest investment vehicles you can get, right? Like if you're not going to stick your money under your mattress, buy bonds from Uncle Sam. That's, that's, that's the, the big uh, billboard on every highway, right? Yep. Tell me why that's apparently problematic. Yeah, well, if you buy like a 30-year bond, uh, at 1%, which is what you would have bought it at a couple of years ago when interest rates were super low, well, that's on your balance sheet and you're going to earn that 1% over that long fixed term period. So super reliable and you know no risk of default from the US government. Um, but if interest rates rise and suddenly you can get 3 or 4% by investing, like sticking your money in a regular bank or buying some a, a newer issue of that bond, well, the old issue of that bond suddenly worth not a lot of money the value of it goes down because it's only paying one percent whereas like new bonds would be paying maybe three or four percent and that's what happened to svb they had a lot of their capital tied up in these super low paying bonds which were current at the time if they've been managing their interest rate risk they'll have been hedging this gap between the interest rate they're earning and the interest rate they need and that would have cost them money to do that but that's the nature of a bank that's kind of that's kind of the whole purpose of a bank. It's its, it's, it's business model. Um, and because SVB didn't do any of this stuff, they kind of put themselves in this crosshairs of customers suddenly taking their money out, not earning enough interest to cover those customer deposits. And suddenly they ended up in a situation where they had a run on a bank. And presumably they've seen this coming for some time. They saw that they needed to raise some money to pay some of these customer outflows. Suddenly that spooked customers. They were like, hold on, how come my bank doesn't have enough money to pay me? They're having to raise money to pay out my deposits. And then you had a run on the bank where all of the customers suddenly were flocking, literally queuing up in the streets, trying to get their money out and the bank didn't have it. So they've effectively gone into like the banking version of receivership over the weekend. And really good news for deposit holders is yesterday, Sunday the 12th, um, the US government have announced that they're going to make whole all US deposit holders. So um, normally you're only insured up to, I think, a quarter of a million dollars. And now the government are effectively are making that an unlimited guarantee. And they'll make that money available today. Because we were all in a bit of a panic that the companies we're invested in, a lot of these little sassy type, fantastic little growth companies might be in really big trouble if they've lost like a huge chunk of their own balance sheet. All right, Luke, that's a lot. That's a lot for a bear of little brain like me to process. So can I rewind the tape a bit and ask you just just for some clarifying points? Going back to this concept of bonds are really safe. That is a thing, right? That is a, a thing in the investment world, right? Like it's one of the if if you're very risk averse, invest in bonds and don't think twice, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. If I'm managing Silicon Valley Bank and I think to myself, okay, I have a massive inflow of 
deposits from the venture capital world. And I don't want to be egregiously stupid with it. I'm going to invest it in these uh, really safe asset classes, including, I guess, primarily bonds. Only to find out, turns out, that in the situation of extremely quick rate hikes, the bonds lose value, but that loss doesn't show up on the balance sheet, right? Because of the maturity date. But am I, as the management team, acting irresponsibly? And second piece of that question is, in hindsight, now that things are obvious, what ought they have done instead? Yeah, there's a couple of things to dive into there. Um, I don't know if I'll do full justice to this, but actually, as a bank, your business model isn't to take customer deposits and stick it in, stick that money in low-risk treasuries and low-risk bonds. Your business model actually is to loan that money back out at a higher rate mm. than you're paying. So you're making, you know, like a small margin. This is why banks have been a terrible investment and a terrible sector for the last decade or so, where we've been in this zero, almost zero interest rate environment, because they, you know, they have such a tiny margin. Now we're in like a four or five percent interest rate environment. It's actually great for banks that are operating effectively and managing their risk properly because they can earn a bigger margin because they're loaning out money at the same time as they're borrowing it. So what you're saying is in this instance, even though bonds are classified as extremely low risk, it's still an investment. It's still one of those low risk doesn't mean no risk. Precisely. And banks have to take risk, like not take risk in, in that they, you know, the risk of going bankrupt, but they should be extending credit to their customers. Some of the customers who need money and they're holding money for the customers who have excess money that they should be making a margin on, on the balance of their inflows and their outflows. All banks hold some bonds, but SVV had like way, way too much in this low risk, inverted commas, low risk um, asset class. They should have been lending out much more money. Um, so in hindsight, the ratio of investment to bonds versus loans was way skewed. And that would have been okay if they hedged that interest rate. Like when they saw interest rates going up, you have like an enormous financial risk management department in all of these big banks because it's a hugely complicated job to manage your inflows and outflows plan the maturity of all your different investments and make sure if interest rates move materially in any direction you're kind of protected but it costs you money to do that you're paying to, to hedge in that way to sort of ensure your position and svb i guess they thought they were being smart and they didn't do that so that was my next question you're in the banking industry and you see the macro situation, you see the Fed being as hawkish as they've been in a long, long time. Interest rates are spiking. How do you not not do what you just said? I mean, is that just sheer incompetence or is, is there other unknowns that we can't figure out? So if you're a bigger bank, the rule used to be you were considered systemically important if, if you're holding an asset base of over $50 billion. And then I think maybe five or six years ago, that moved up to $250 billion. So actually, SVB would have fallen into the old criteria. They no longer do. So what that meant is, an example, there's something called the liquidity coverage ratio. It's like a funding requirement. Essentially, it says banks that fall into this regulation have to have enough ultra-liquid assets, basically like cash or you know near-cash assets, to cover a 30-day run on the bank. Well, these rules don't apply to SVB 
under these new guidelines because they're below the $250 billion uh, watermark. So, you know, did they break the, the rules and the regulations? I mean, I think they probably did, but not as materially as you might think. Like they have some latitude to operate as they choose to, but it's clearly incredibly irresponsible. And like I say, they must have seen this coming for months and months and months. But by then it's probably too late. They're sitting on this huge, like, paper loss. And they got forced to realise that loss because customers were withdrawing their money. So they were sort of unlucky in a sense, but also, you know, their irresponsibility and poor decision-making put them in a position that this bad luck could strike and, you know, strike them mortally as it has done. Yeah, when when I'm sitting at the poker table, I, I know uh, luck is going to enter the equation to a significant degree, and that's part of the structure, right? What was the market cap on Silicon? It was the 19th largest bank in the U.S.? Is that is right? That I didn't right? know that big. Okay, it could be. Oh, yeah. or yeah. Uh, maybe I just made that up, but it was pretty large, right? I don't like hearing this 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 idea that luck was involved with a gigantic bank. You know, I mean, that they got unlucky somehow. I mean... Yeah. I, oh, no, I, I totally agree. Like, it's a situation of their own uh, machinations. And, like, the thing that's horrific, really... Like, I, I, I applaud the US government for the steps they've taken, kind of necessary for them to underwrite depositors. Like, if you're... Like a, uh, not a Silicon Valley company, be like a little mum and pop business, right? Um, well, okay, here's a real good example, a true example. So you've got like a bunch of mums making bank every month by selling things on Etsy, like the marketplace for handmade like arts and crafts. And over the weekend, we had the news that Etsy were unable to pay out some of their sellers, like their customers on the platform, because they couldn't get access to their funds because they had their money tied up in SVB. So, you know, the US government had to step in in this way. Otherwise, the repercussions weren't just to like these hedge funds and, you know, these like rich bankers that have impacted everybody. So that would have been really, really ugly. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad that's happened. Like a bunch of companies I'm invested in have kind of been rescued. But if you're an investor in SVB, your share capital is worth zero now. And that's kind of as it should be. Your company mismanaged things pretty badly. So a follow-up question for you. Uh, I think we'll need to go into the fallout and the venture capitalist firms that might have been affected, not affected, and all that. But before we get there, Luke, on the most fundamental level, is not the Federal Reserve's literal job, like their little uh, shingle outside the window that says, if there's a bad, say, situation at your bank, like a bank run, our job is to shore up the temporary outflow of cash so that you remain solvent. Is that not, not like a way to understand that, unlike, say, 2008, where I guess the whole system was infected via over-leveraged, useless investments, right? That in this case, the bank had this, say, case of poor management plus bad luck, but in spirit, it was not a malevolent actor, and therefore the Fed's job is exactly to do what they did. I guess this this deposit protection scheme we have we call it the FSCS in the UK. I think in the US they call it FDIC. So that exists to provide these protection to depositors, but the scale of this kind of wipeout 
of, of these big corporate accounts, the majority of which had way more than the $250,000 insured limit. Like that, that, was, that was an extraordinary situation that did require a specific decision from the government. And they've, I think you're probably right, they've taken the only decision they could take um, because of the risk of kind of panic and fear in the streets and maybe you know, a mass run on all the banks. I guess my question is, is more, why was it even a decision to be made? That's, I guess, what I'm asking. You have one job, right? I mean... You've got to find the cash from somewhere, right? So, um, you know, even if you're the US government, I think having the president involved in this decision probably is the right thing to do. Plus, it's good optics. And the other in really interesting thing here, actually, is... Um, so the US government are, in the long run, they're going to make money out of this. Um, because... Like fundamentally, this is a liquidity problem right now because those bonds are worth less than they should be. But if you had like a huge long time horizon and essentially infinite pockets, which is what the US government has, all they need to do is they've, they've kind of bought up these positions. They just need to hold these bonds to maturity, like 30 years or so time, and they're going to get their money back. So um, it's just this, it's kind of a temporary problem um, that a private corporation isn't in a position to deal with because they've kind of created this problem for themselves. But actually, that's that's not a big deal for the US government. And funnily enough, my ex-employer, HSBC, have, have jumped in and taken this role in the UK. I saw it announced just this morning as I was checking the news feed. So um, brokered by our prime minister and a few other folk, um, HSBC have now bought up the UK arm of Silicon Valley Bank for one pound. And if, if HSBC can integrate this into its UK operations, actually, they're probably going to make a decent amount of money out of this too um, and take on like a whole bunch of really interesting clients, which will probably be good for the bank too. So, yeah, I guess maybe it's a good time to segue. I think recently I've been going on and on about this concept of being contrarian, which is sort of really related to, you know, be greedy when others are fearful, but mm, it's not quite the same thing. Because I guess greed and fear are emotions, whereas being contrary is saying something that has nothing to do with emotion, but is contrary to the majority of people looking at the same situation, which is a hard thing to do. I think that I've spoken about that, how hard emotionally, psychologically it is to say something that is, you're the only one in the room saying this, right? But those are the situations that I love as an investor. Because that's really, if you're right and you're contrarian, that's, you're also rich. So right now, I'm looking at the companies that are falling because they have some ties to Silicon Valley Bank. And I'm perceiving a temporary hysterical overreaction. And now I'm not talking about the banking industry, right? I'm talking about just the, the, the companies that did banking with Silicon Valley because... Unless I'm being extraordinarily naive, I am seeing the government stepping in. There is insurance up to whatever quote is. And yeah, it's going to be messy and there's going to be a lot of time it takes to untangle. The, I mean, all of that, right? But in the end, if I'm a long-term investor and I'm thinking even two years out, and I know my, my company was involved with SVB, but you know they'll be fine. You know, maybe temporarily their balance sheet's not going to look as pretty as, as assumed then why would I not try to take advantage of some of these uh, sale prices? And in fact, personally, for the record, uh, with one of my recommendations, uh, I did just that. 
uh, this morning, in fact, when the stock was opened up, uh, I don't know, it was like something like a 30% haircut in just the past couple days, accentuated by the fear over the weekend. And my own process was, is the company fundamentally solid or not? Even if it takes a short-term hit. And my answer was, it's fundamentally solid or solid enough that this is an overreaction, therefore let me be contrarian and buy more shares. Tell me why I'm stupid to have done that. No, no, not at all. I, I fully agree. Uh, in the end, ultimately, perhaps, uh, maybe I'm understating it, a bit of a nothing burger now. It looked like it could have been a complete disaster. Now the government have taken that step and they've said everyone's going to have access to 100% of their cash like today. Should be no impact, hopefully, to our, um, our, our fantastic little growth companies. Um, pro- probably there'll be some like operational complexity for everyone because I imagine like CFOs are having emergency meetings all around the world right now and saying like guys where do we have our money um, we need to spread it around a little more um, so I think we'll probably see some of that stuff but that's just kind of you know background operations and decision making um, but yeah if you've picked up some stuff at a 30% discount a few days ago probably going to serve you very well in the years to come. And right, this reminds me too that the the operational excesses that we saw in 21, 22, I guess Elon is the poster boy for saying all of these companies are bloated to, you know, like a bloat, I don't know, bloated like a white, like a fat, I was going to say fat cow, but, <laughs> but, but I'm not sure if that's a good metaphor. Anyhow, they were already in the process of, of of extreme cuts, you're right. All all of the big tech giants, right? Um, it seems to me that this is yet more incentive that that sends out yet another signal to everybody that unless you become as a as a uh, chief executive in your company, unless you put cash in operational efficiency and excellence at the tippity top, and you leave yourself enough runway for the next, I don't know, two years, then you're being negligent. And that, so my prediction is, I guess, that from an investing standpoint, that the companies that are already cash flow positive and operationally positive probably will end up growing bigger and stronger faster because they've been doing it all along. And that the companies that were somewhere caught in the good enough or excessive kind of structure they're about to have right severe uh layoffs and we're seeing that right now you know even before this weekend everyone's tightening their purse strings seeing what's coming with the recession and then they're trying to make sure like shore up their balance sheet shore up their outflows and make sure they can kind of weather this storm but you're absolutely right like companies that are already free cash flow positive um and growing at a nice rate i think we'll see them accelerate versus those that are, but were perhaps sort of struggling before this environment was upon us. So Christoph, that was a pretty uh, light run through of what's been happening with SVB and in the markets generally. Should we have a quick reflection on what's happening in March? We're running March Madness at Seven Investing. And if you've been following Simon Erickson on Twitter, you'd have seen him tweeting out every day last week, uh, our March Madness brackets. And we're pitching 16 fantastic companies up against each other and I'm not really a sports guy, but we've got these brackets. It's going to be like 16 to 8 to 4, and then we'll have like an ultimate winner at some point. I think the championship is on the 23rd of March. So 
If you want to check out March Madness, go look at any of our Twitters or go to seveninvesting.com slash March Madness. If you're on the Twitter, you can have a vote, have a say in who you think should go forwards to the next round. I've got my favourite horse. I wonder if you have someone you would predict as being the winner. Noting that we're recording this on the 13th of March, and so we have, we're still in round one. We've got no idea who's really going to make it to the end. I do have my, my horse, and it is, uh, it is Tesla. Tesla, right. Wow. Mm-hmm. Big market cap today. So you think Tesla's going to deliver the greatest investment returns over the next three years up against those other 15 fantastic companies. Yeah, I think Tesla is going to win the tournament, but I'm not sure. I think other companies have a better shot at producing overall returns from today's price. But tournament-wise, it is two separate questions. You're right. Tesla's got a strong chance, right? It's a divisive stock, but probably an investor favorite. So decent chance that does win the tournament. But if we do think about who's actually going to deliver the, the greatest returns from its current valuation... Over the next three years, I've got a bit of a dark horse here. I don't think it's going to do well in the tournament, but it could be the best return. I'm going for Disney. No, get out of here. (laughs) The house of the mouse. They've been like woefully mismanaged over the last year or so with all this like changing in leadership. They look like they've done a great job with Disney Plus, but actually the economics of streaming don't seem to be working out. But we cannot forget this crazy portfolio of intellectual property they have these beloved characters and if they can just get the business model back on track they're like a sub 200 billion dollar business they could like multi-bagger from there can tesla like double or triple its valuation over the next three years maybe but my money's on the smaller company i do not think it's impossible for tesla to triple from these prices given what's coming in the inner what they're about to reveal in the energy their energy revenues with the mega packs so i'm taking it all back i think tesla could both win the tournament and be the actual correct (laughs) the the produce the largest gains my dark horse though is i hate to say it because oh my god i bleed and i have nightmares flashbacks but i think upstart would be has the greatest dark horse potential, especially if they survive the liquidity crunch. And if the there's a Fed pivot sooner than later and banks start getting serious about becoming more fish, efficient with their processes, Upstart has such, such immense upside. Uh, they are not to be trusted. <laughs> <laughs> I've learned that the extraordinarily hard way. So... Yeah, good stuff. So you've got our predictions. I think we're probably both saying Tesla for the competition, but maybe it's Tesla versus Disney versus Upstart for the real returns. If you want to have your own say, go check out our Twitters. I'm at seven Luke Hallard. Christoph, you're at seven Flying Platypus. Or go check out Seven Investing at Twitter and go have your own vote in the March Madness. We're voting every day this week and next week. Sweet. Shall we talk a little bit about smart contracts, Luke? Let's do that. I'm keen to hear what you've uh, gleaned from reading the ARC Big Ideas deck. I didn't really learn much because I'm, I'm invested in this space in one particular uh, company, which I'm happy to, to mention because at 7investing, we don't, do, we don't offer crypto recommendations. But 
one of my highest portfolio holdings is Chainlink. It's complicated, so I don't really want to get into the details, but it's a DeFi, decentralized finance oracle that is essentially a bridge. It works as a bridge of data from the real world, and it helps that data go on chain into the crypto world. That's kind of its, its function. And the thesis is there can only really be one such Oracle network, kind of like there could only really be one internet. You know, if you, I'm sure there are multiple kinds of little sub internets, but really there's just one predominant network. And my thesis is that Chainlink will be that, that dominant uh, bridge, but that's neither here nor there. You and I were having a kerfuffle of a, there, there, I love, I guess I love that word. Uh, because uh, you threw some fine words my way when I picked Coinbase to advance in the tournament, and I was wrong, and uh, mistakes were made. But <laughs> correct me if I'm wrong. You you squeezed my shoes over crypto being funny money, or that whole space being funny money. Is that accurate? Uh, yeah, I got some crypto, but I'm kind of skeptical about that part of my portfolio. Oh, tell so tell, us, tell is, us why smart contracts are the future, though. So here's the thing. I mean, this couldn't be more apropos for the moment we're in. The investment case is actually extraordinarily straightforward. How simply can I explain this straightforward <laughs> investment case? Blockchains are the technology. I think of it as the math, the math and the computing. So I just think of it kind of as a, a global computer. When I think blockchain, I think global computer that, that handles transactions. And the magic of this global computer is that anytime you have a transaction that runs on it, it's transparent and it's visible to everybody. And there is no way to alter it. It's a public ledger, I guess, is, is how I think of it, right? Now, what does that have to do with smart contracts. Smart contracts are, if you think about it as, uh, as applications that live on top of this computer that offers you transparent receipts. So the world we live in now primarily is a world in which if I want to send you $10, I go to my bank in some form or fashion, right? And via the banking system, I get my money from me to you. And now all is fine and good, right? Because the bank, the bank has its shingle and, and it, has, it looks pretty and the lobby has, has friendly people greeting you. And most of the time, it certainly does work. Most of the time. <laughs> and that's why people don't pay attention to it. And this is why the moment we're in, it's the water fire hose moment where you ought to be thinking to yourself, wait a second, in 2008, even the big banks that said, trust us, were proved to be outright liars. I mean, malicious, malevolent liars who basically were doing such shady things that it was borderline criminal, if not criminal. I can't, I mean, some of it was criminal, other was loopholey, whatever, right? right? But the point being was now we have what happened over the last five days, and it's not the same category to me, but nonetheless, if I'm an honest company doing the good work, putting in the hundreds of hours, working on the weekends, right? And I'm banking with Silicon Valley Bank. Again, trust us. We're fine. We're good. We're honest. We're doing right by you. And I'm then told out of seemingly nowhere, oops, your money is maybe gone. 
but you sure as hell can't pay your payroll next week, so good luck. That whole trust us piece is, I don't know how to better explain it. I could feel myself getting emotional because I'm throwing my jabs right now if you can see me on, on the YouTubes. But what I'm saying is, uh, even if 99% of the time trust us ends up working fine, that 1% should scare the living Jesus out of anybody that handles money. So what does the smart contract and what does the DeFi protocol that runs on blockchain offer? It basically says, once you start transacting via smart contracts, you're taking all the middlemen out of it and you're going to program in some condition. Uh, when Luke is right about the March 23 madness contest, I'm going to wire him the 100 bucks I owe him at this date. And there it is in the computer. And there is no, the money will then be taken out of my account and into Luke's. And there is no percentage lost. And there is no, the middleman, the trust us piece, basically gets completely taken out of it. So that's, I think, the the primary case for for smart contracts. And from my perspective, I just can't unthink this. It's like one of those things, like once you see it, I can't unsee it. I don't understand how it all of finance doesn't move in this direction. And by the way, important point of clarification, the stuff I'm talking about is very different from the centralized platforms handling crypto stuff like Celsius and Voyager and BlockFi and uh, FTX. All of those things were central. In other words, the, it, it was using the crypto name as false advertising. Crypto, by definition, is decentralized, meaning nobody owns it. Therefore, nobody can corrupt it. And so while all of that, that shit show was collapsing, the decentralized finance players were still doing the work. We're still growing the blockchains. We're still writing the applications. And the flows from all of that remain steady. And what I'm seeing as of this morning is by the way, Bitcoin is up a lot and uh, Chainlink is up a lot. All of these things, my claim on this show to you is are honest players and that the whole thesis investment is this is honesty in its crudest, rawest form. There is no such thing as manipulating your your numbers. And that's the other thing I want. I remembered, Luke. The big concept here really is something called proof of reserve. Don't, in other words, it applies so beautifully to the Silicon Valley bank thing. Just because your balance sheet says you have so much money in this and this form, or your CFO or CEO says you, you have enough deposits, bullshit. Prove it to me. And via, via smart contracts, that's basically what it does. It's like public, like publicly, you could at any moment see exactly how much some entity has or doesn't have. To me, it solves one of the greatest problems, really. I mean, humanity still has left. These kinds of tremors in, the fin in our financial institutions, which could pretty much bring us back to the dark ages if it all does go to hell, is solved via smart contracts. So, boom, boom. Boom! <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not going to argue with you. Uh, I think the fundamental technology you're right about, my only hiya block is that um, there's no real true application of this stuff right now. Um, it's not to say there will never be, but there's no 
uh, no one's using smart contracts in any material way beyond like a bunch of super like niche nerds kind of messing around trading stuff. No one's using this for anything at scale. Uh, at scale yet. Uh, I'm glad you qualified that because I was about to come at you, come back at you. And unfortunately, I have to go. So it seems like we need to um, we need to talk about the other piece of this, which is uh, Bitcoin and then the NFTs and all of that, because I'm going to. I'm going to take your claim and, uh, and and put it through the ringer. Okay, we'll pick it up in episode 14. We can resume our sparring. Yeah, so I guess today was a kind of quick and dirty fun with finance and the banking system episode. For anybody listening that is having direct difficulty because of the situation, my heart goes out to all of you because this is incredibly stressful moment. Uh, I hope everybody makes it through okay. Yep, 100%. I think we've all gotten away with it as investors, but uh, it was it did feel like a bit of a close call. Anyway, a kind of happy place to leave things, perhaps. Maybe we're recording in two weeks' time. Maybe we'll see uh, if some of those repercussions played out or not. Plus, we'll see if our predictions for March Madness came true. All right, yeah, looking forward to seeing you soon, Luke. Okay, dude, if you enjoyed today's episode, uh, do us a favor and share it with a friend. Otherwise, we'll catch up with you in two weeks for episode 14.